Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm Megan Cole, your host, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On this podcast, I chat with the authors and illustrators whose books are shortlisted for the annual prizes. Daryl McLeod's book, Mama Sketch, A Cree Coming of Age, had been on my to-read list for a while. But as a library worker and a writer and a master's student, I'm constantly adding new books to my to-read pile, which means there's like this constant reshuffling and restructuring of my to-read list. When I at last sat down with Mama's Catch, I was pulled in from the beginning. Daryl's writing is so powerful and beautiful, and I have gone on to recommend this book as a gift to so many people because I just think it's such an important and powerful story. Mama Sketch was shortlisted for the 2019 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award and has also won the 2018 Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction, among a whole bunch of other accolades and acclaim. In our conversation, we discuss the healing that can be found in storytelling, the power of nature and the environment, and we also talked about the pursuit of community and belonging. This is my chat with Daryl McLeod. This excerpt is from Madonna of the Athabasca, a chapter of my book, Mama Scotch. This chapter takes place on Sunday morning in Smith, Alberta, a village of about 200, including cats and dogs, as they say. In it are a little Daryl, his, his mother Bertha, his older siblings Debbie and Greg. The four younger siblings are mentioned along with his stepfather Ned. The white people in the village are mentioned too. There was a clear us and them mentality in the village in those days, and there probably still is. This kids, the kids' Sunday routine is to go to Catholic Mass. Debbie takes them, and as usual this Sunday, Ned has given Debbie a blue $5 bill to put in the collection plate. But Debbie has a different idea. She'll take Daryl and Greg for a walk and then to the cafe for ice cream with Ned's money. They take a circuitous route so nobody will see them wandering around in their Sunday best, skipping church and eating ice cream cones. So here we go from uh, Madonna of the Athabasca. As we reached the clearing between the swampy area and the railroad tracks, we heard a cacophony of honking and looked up to see Canada geese high overhead in a partial V formation, rehearsing their long migration south. I wonder where they go, Greg mused. Wherever it is, I wish we could go with them, Debbie answered. The bridge spanned the wide, turbulent Athabasca at the place where a determined smaller river pushed its way in at a strange angle. Water gushed in one direction, then back, whirlpools and standing waves. The three steel arches looked solid, but the platform for driving and walking was made up of black railroad ties with wide spaces in between. As we started across, I imagined slipping through the cracks and falling into the swirling river far below. If I fell in, I would be carried away downstream, away from the worries at home. I closed my eyes and felt my body plunging feet first into the cool brown waters, flailing and bobbing in the current. Come on, Dades, don't be a scaredy cat, Greggy goaded me. I looked down into the glimmering water. With each second that passed, I felt dizzier. Slowly, I lowered myself to my hands and knees, then onto my belly and slithered across the ties. Greggy and Debbie called to me from the other side, doubled over with laughter. I was too focused on the might of the river below to care what they were saying. It took forever to cross. 
Once I stood vibrating on the other side, I felt drained but curious. I knew I would have to come back, alone next time, to understand what the river was offering me. Back at home, we didn't need our hastily conceived alibi. Nobody was concerned about where we had been. Ned had kept the small kids in the bedroom, and soon we understood why. Mother hadn't gone to bed as we had hoped. She was still sitting at the table, and she had shed the flowery pink house coat. Her brown backside and legs were completely exposed. Greggy and I looked down at the linoleum floor she had recently painted, while Debbie grabbed the house coat and hurriedly draped it over Mother. I kept my head lowered, trying to follow my mother's movements by watching the shadows cast by the bare light bulb suspended from the ceiling. Mother pushed her chair back, a dramatic flying shadow as she threw the house coat across the room, then jumped up and stumbled outside through the living room door. We hurried after her into the blinding sunlight. Mother staggered over uneven ground towards Debbie's blue bicycle, where it leaned against the rickety wooden fence. She tugged on the handlebars, placed her bare foot on one pedal, and struggled to lift her other foot across the frame. She balanced awkwardly, faltering down the path toward the gravel road that led to downtown Smith. Mother, come back here, Debbie squawked. I stood aghast, watching my mother's bare back, bare back glide into the distance. I could feel my adoration dissipating, turning to shame or maybe even hatred. Where was she going? Would she ever come back? What if she ended up in the river? I pictured her, hands clutching the handlebars, floating on her side, partially submerged and still pedding, pedaling as the undulating current swept her away. Thank you so much, Daryl. There's such beautiful scenes in this book, and I found myself at the end, you know, I, I really cared for these these characters, this your family that you create, you know, you really brought your family to life in the pages of your book, and that's just one beautiful example of that. Oh, thank you so much. So something that I was really interested in as I was reading your book, and I guess more in, in the later chapters, was that you didn't, you weren't necessarily a writer from the beginning. So how did you find your way to putting your stories on the page? Well, it was a long process. Um, when I gave talks about Mama Scotch, the, the process leading up to writing it and then the actual writing of it, I used to say that my inspiration came from reading um, Margaret Lawrence's book, The Diviners, in second year university. And that was a big part of the inspiration. But the inspiration really started, I guess, where the book mm -hmm. opens, at the point in um, my life where the book opens, when uh, little Daryl is about 12 or 13, and his mother calls him downstairs in the middle of the night to listen to her stories. And um, somehow that boy of 12 or 13 had the insight to know that those stories were important. And so he sat there patiently and listened, taking it all in for hours and hours, like until three or four o'clock in the morning, um, night after night. And um, that was where it all really began. Somehow mother selected me to tell her stories too. And um, I guess somehow deep in her spirit or maybe subconsciously she knew I would be the one who would pass them on and keep the stories of our family, our culture, history and our intimate family stories keep the, that I would keep them alive. And then in second year university, uh, when I read Margaret Lawrence's book, 
I was taken aback. I loved that book, and I was so taken aback at how somebody could describe in such a rich way um, the life of working class, poor, and, um, well, not even middle class, but working class and poor Canadians, and tell it such in such an interesting and vivid way that people found compelling. Um, Margaret Lawrence, you probably know that the diviners got a lot of attention back in the day and still is mm -hmm. a very popular piece of Canadian literature. So I thought then that, you know, it, it, it would be possible to tell my story in an, in a way that people would be interested in. And uh, then in a couple years later, I was studying, I was still in university and I majored in French literature. And a couple of my French professors uh, sort of took me under their wing. They were they were old enough to be my parents and they became mentors. They were a married couple. And um, so we would sit around, we always spoke French, and um, we'd sip uh, red wine, which is a great way to learn French, by the way. <laughs> And uh, we would chat and they'd ask me stories, ask me questions about my childhood and my youth. And I told them many of mother's stories and my stories. And they said emphatically that they thought it was critical that I write those stories down because it was a unique part of the Canadian experience that nobody else could talk about. Unique part of Canadian society and the fabric of Canadian society that was important to get out there. And then the the sort of second last phase of the inspiration was when I was working as a school principal in northern BC and uh, I worked with a wonderful elder named Catherine Bird. She was a local carrier or duck health elder and um, a, a remarkable woman and we used to sit around telling stories after school um, her and I and the teachers and some of the teacher teaching aides from the community. And at one point after I told a couple of my stories, she said she turned to me and raised her big, she had big, strong hands, and she raised her finger and wagged it at me and said, Daryl, you have to write those stories down. They'll help people someday. And it was that at that moment that I knew I was going to write my stories down. And uh, I knew it was one of those special moments where you knew it wasn't just that person. It wasn't just Catherine Bird talking to me. It was the universe giving me really clear direction. Mm -hmm. And I took it as such. And so I did start writing then. And I thought that I would be writing stories for children, for 10 to 13-year-olds. So that's sort of the type of story I began to write. Uh, really short stories, maybe two pages in length, all based on poignant moments uh, in my life experiences as a young Cree boy growing up in northern Alberta. And then a couple of years before I was going to quit working full-time, and I knew that, um, I decided to take a writing course. And I came across a brochure for a course at Simon Fraser University with an amazing instructor named Betsy Warland. And the course was called Memoir of Inquiry. And it just captured me. The description of the course really captured me. And I thought, this is what I need to do. And uh, so I took Betsy's six-week course, and then um, I kept working with Betsy. We really had a strong connection and still do. Uh, and I kept working with her for a year and a half. And during that time, I wrote 26 short stories. And Betsy did a very gentle edit. She She's a real master at helping people to find their voice and to be confident in their own authentic voice and to get on the scent of the narrative and to follow and trust the narrative as it leads you through. So um, 
sorry, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but uh, the next phase was that um, Betsy, after we had brought those stories to a certain place and put them together as a manuscript, turned me over to a friend of hers named Shana Lambert. And Shana's an amazing and very successful fiction writer. Um, and um, Betsy's I thinking was that if I were to work with a, an accomplished fiction writer, that would help me give more depth to my characters, you know, the real people, obviously, but to portray them in a deeper way on the page and to give, give better descriptions, uh, write more complete scenes where I had partial scenes where I'd be able to fill them out and even to maybe include some dialogue for effect. And um, it worked. I worked with Shana Lambert for about a year and a half. So from beginning to end, the book took about six years. And uh, with Shana Lambert, I cobbled the book from 500 pages down to 300 pages. And it became the, the version of the book Mama Scotch that eventually got published. I, it, at some point, I think I'm going to have to interview Betsy because she's become a theme in many of my conversations. So many people have worked with her. <laughs> I'm not surprised. She's an amazing mentor and coach. Yeah. One of the chapters I was really interested in, um, and it, I think it's the second chapter in your book, but it, Hail Mary Full of Grace. Um, right. I just thought it was it was really interesting for me how, how you included that too, because it was almost with the first chapter, you took us right in to your childhood home with you and your mom and the storytelling. But then there was almost this kind of cinematic, like zooming out effect that you did with going um, into Hail Mary Full of Grace. But I I think if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, that's the only one that's in, um, in third person and it's, you're not really in that scene. Can you talk a bit about that chapter and how you approach the writing of it? Sure. When I began writing, as I said, I, I did. I wrote short stories, and I didn't necessarily plan for them to all be in one book and and to hang together as a novel eventually, as or as a memoir, yeah. as a complete book. Um, and so I drafted that story expecting it to be published uh, in a literary review or magazine, and it was. Uh, that was my first publication, actually, in Numero Sank with Douglas Glover. Um, and um, so I, I just crafted that story as, as a standalone story, and it was based on uh, stories, repetitive stories that my mother had told me about her experiences and her sister and auntie's experience in residential school. And once I had finished it, you know, uh, um, people who read it felt very strongly about it. Uh, they, in a part, they really liked it and, and thought I had to do something important with it, including du Douglas Glover. Um, I submitted it to him, um, let's say, on a Tuesday, and I had an answer by Wednesday morning uh, wow. that he wanted to publish it, which is unheard of uh, with literary magazines, as you probably know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that was really encouraging. Um, and then I knew it had to be included in my memoir uh, somehow, but I, I wasn't sure how I would do that or if I could do that and get away with it kind of thing. So I did some research. I called on some academic friends who have done research into, um, you know, uh, intergenerational trauma and, um, they were they're pretty high level academics and um, 
they researched it for me and they said it's totally legitimate for me to include it in my memoir as you know intergenerational trauma and memories uh, that um, memories that are passed genetically from one generation to the other and that really affect affect our lives and experiences and um, so they sent me a few academic articles and uh, convinced me that was totally legitimate for me to include it in my memoir. And I'm glad I did because it is a crucial part of my life and my experience. And it's really important for people to understand that background. And often people see the reality that Indigenous people are going through, um, like, you know, many of the stereotypes of people being begging and down and out and drunk on the streets. And they don't have the backstory. And often there's little or no empathy uh, as a result of that. And so... I felt it was really important to give the backstory of my mother's life and her trauma and to help to end mine to sort of make the linkages between them so people would understand the historical background. Mm-hmm. And and was the research of that piece, was that just kind of your memories of what your, your mom and your aunties had shared with you? It was what my mother had shared with me. but over and over again and she could only talk about the residential schools after she had been drinking Mm. she didn't ever talk about her experience in residential schools like in the daytime or when she hadn't had anything to drink and an interesting thing came out after an interesting point came out after the publication of the book after many of my cousins had read the book older cousins um cousins my age and all all first cousins so most of their mothers had been to residential school with my mother and some of their fathers too had been to residential school. And um, to a person, my cousin said that their mothers didn't ever tell them anything about residential school. They didn't. They knew that they had been um, to the same residential school, um, St. Bernard's in Gruard, Alberta, which is really close to Slave Lake. But their mothers didn't tell them any stories at all uh, they just completely blocked it out. Hmm. So it must have been quite healing for your whole family to have a little bit of their history in your book. I think it was, and it was wonderful to be able to portray my great aunt Helen. Hmm. Um, my mom used to call her Auntie Helen, even though they were quite close in age. Um, it was wonderful to be able to portray my aunt Aunt Helen as as a heroine in that uh, story. She was the one who led. The, the pack and hatched, helped to hatch a plan for a breakout. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was wonderful and, and cathartic healing to write that. that. That's a true story that my, my aunts did break out of that residential school and they broke out in a violent way, but they hatched a plan very carefully. And they knew that the girls and boys who had tried to escape in the past were usually brought back by the police. And the punishment for trying to escape was severe and brutal, including things like solitary confinement and stuff like that, no food or water for days. And um, so they wanted to make darn sure that the nuns wouldn't want them back. And that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. It's something that came across for me um, as I was reading Mama Sketch was this theme of, of belonging and looking for community and there's, you know, the belonging within your family and your community and the friend groups that you found yourself in um, throughout the book. But also I was really touched by the things that kind of impacted your ability to find belonging, like intergenerational trauma 
and um, and the places you found, you know, community with music and, and religion. Did you, were those things kind of in your mind as you were writing the book? Oh, sure. They were very vivid experiences and, um, yeah, and profound at the time. And, um, I mean, the, the music um, aspect has continued and has been a lifelong um, thing for me in the community of, of musicians, sort of belonging to the tribe of musicians has been a constant theme in my life and still is. I still um, perform and um, sing jazz and play jazz guitar and uh, piano and stuff. And um, so that's really important. The The religious community at the time, uh, it sort of came about as a result of the music community because in, in high school, um, I got really involved in music. I was in the I played trumpet too, so I was in the concert band, I was in the jazz band, I was in the brass quartet, I was in the concert chorus, I was in the jazz chorus, I was in a magical choir, and a barbershop quartet. (laughs) Everything I could possibly get into that was related to music. And as a result, so were many of my friends. And it was a couple of my music friends that actually converted me to Christianity, um, that took me aside one day and... um, and, uh, convinced me that, you know, I, I needed to have accept Jesus into my heart and become a born-again Christian and all that sort of thing. And at the time, it was a very important um, adaptation, a very important um, happening, because my family, my immediate family, I was had moved away from home, from all of my cousins and aunts and uncles, uh, because our family was disrupted. And um, I was in Calgary pretty much on my own, and well, I was on my own completely, and um, so my friends were my family, my close music friends, and then when I became part of this Christian fellowship, they became my family, and they really did care for me in a in a profound and and real way. So they gave me advice. They even at times when I really was desperate, uh, unemployed, and didn't have any resources, they helped to pay my rent, and helped to buy me food, and. Um, I had some surrogate parents who gave me advice about going to university and stuff like that. So it was very important, and they were a loving and, and profoundly caring group. And their love was genuine. It wasn't just uh, based on you know religious doctrine or charity. And um, so it was, it was meaningful fellowship and meaningful support. But unfortunately, the heresy of it all... Um, I'm a very logical, rational thinker, and um, when the, I got into a group that was kind of a cultish group, and we had one leader who didn't, for a while he, he took advice from a group of pastors, but then he became independent and started doing things that I considered heretical, and it was when he was going to actually turn um, the soul and body of a good friend who I had brought to Christianity, is going to turn him over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh, and those are the exact words that they use. Um, and he was going to have a, they were going to have a ceremony to do this, and involved me in the ceremony because they considered me a youth elder kind of thing. Um, and um, I couldn't do it. I mean, my heart and my my logical side just said, "There's no way, you know, this any human being." Or group of human beings has the power or authority to turn another one over to the devil mm-hmm. and um, so I left and I didn't go back 
And as a result, my friends, who my close friends who were there, you know, did come to see me, but they sort of made it quite clear that if I wanted the friendship to continue, that I would have to go back to the, that group mm-hmm. and rejoin the fellowship sort of thing. Yeah, it's, that's quite a compelling chapter in the book, the one where you, um, the heresy becomes so, so prevalent to you. And it was, I, that was quite a, a moving chapter for me. Hmm. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, and another thing, in addition to the, the themes of, uh, belonging and that quest for belonging that came across to me were the birds, um, and mm. how you comment on the birds and that they were kind of, uh, communicating with you, but they also had a relationship with your, your mother as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about the birds in your book? Sure. Well, I, I've learned so much. Um, I learned so much while I was writing the book about myself and about my mother and my family. And, you know, in all I've had many interviews, as you probably aware, since the book has come out. And um, so every interview, there have been wonderful and unique questions like the ones you're asking mm. that have led me to reflect on things that I hadn't previously considered. And right now, you know, I've had a... Um, a growing concern. I've always had a concern. I mean, for years, um, for decades, now I've had a concern about suicide, and wondering how to prevent it. And now, with there's an epidemic of youth suicide, uh, suicide of children and youth in Indigenous communities across Canada, mm-hmm. and actually in North America and South America, Indigenous communities, it's a, it's the same thing. So it's been a real concern for me, and I've been searching my soul, trying to, if I were to give advice to a kid who's you know, in a poor community um, with an overcrowded housing situation and no, they feel they have nobody to turn to and no resources, no good school building or playground or safe place they can go to. You know, what advice would I give them? And my advice is what I did in the, that situation. It was to go into nature. Mm-hmm. And so I've realized, you know, I've come to the conclusion for myself that the ultimate sense of belonging for a person, for a human being, especially an indigenous person, but I think this applies to everybody, is the communion with nature. That's the ultimate belonging, and we can always revert to that, and we can always rely on it. You know, nature will always be there for us, and it'll always be a positive and supportive um, vibe that we get from nature. And um, so, yeah, that includes the birds. Um, The birds comfort me and guide me wherever I go in subtle ways. And um, it's, it's really, it really is the ultimate communion is with, with nature, including trees, the forest, uh, water, any body of water, and the animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting you talking about nature because I've, I've been thinking about that as well, nature and our healing and I read um, Clifford by Harold Johnson recently. Oh, right. That that came across in his book too. You know, feeling com- safe and at home and grounded in nature. It was definitely important themes that we need to be paying more attention to. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I, it's probably bad form to talk about the end of a book, but I wanted to talk about the last uh, chapter or last essay in Mama Sketch because it really, to me. W- highlighted this uh, homecoming and and maybe finding a sense of peace in things. Um, 
was it a natural ending for you to include that chapter or was that placed elsewhere previously? Well, when I wrote the the book, as I said, it was a, a collection. Of, it was a um, bunch of short stories. Mm. And when I realized it was going to, I could cobble them together into a manuscript, I wasn't sure what to do with the ordering. I didn't want it to be a chronological story as such. And so I kind of mixed them all up. And then I did some research on uh, how time should function in, in narratives. And um, some experts I came across, their conclusion was, or at least my summary of, of the collective uh, knowledge that I gained by researching how time works in, in narratives, is that if you're going to interrupt the narrative and force the reader to go back in time or back and forth in time, you'd better have a very good reason for doing that. Mm-hmm. And so that caused, that led me to lay the stories out in, in a chronological order and um, with a couple of exceptions. And um, so that um, that's sort of how the stories ended up the way they are. And I'm not too worried about talking about the end of the book because the end of the book is not the end of the story. Of course. <laughs> uh, the sequel to Mama Scotch, Piagao, is coming out in uh, September of 2020. And uh, it's already been edited, and um, it's with my publisher, Douglas and McIntyre, for uh, finishing touches and cover design and stuff like that. But that story, uh, yeah, just naturally fit there. It, it, it worked really nicely to put it, put it right there. It, it worked really, really well. And... Um, for the narrative arc of the of the book, even though it's a memoir, there still is a narrative arc, um, and um, in other every other way, it just it fit there so well. Yeah, it's a beautiful ending to the book. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thanks again to Daryl for being on the podcast. Daryl shared with me that there is a sequel to Mama Sketch due out in the fall of twenty twenty. And he's also working on a novel that he started while well at the BAMP Center. So if you loved Mama Sketch and if you love Daryl McLeod's writing, which you should, there is lots more coming in the future. Thank you, lovely listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Writing the Coast. On the next episode, I will chat with Kathy Page about her book, Dear Evelyn, If you're interested in learning more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to check out the website bcyukonbookprizes.com.